Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Deutsche Bank Chief Executive Officer Don Kryan was talking in Frankfurt today. He said Germany's largest bank is looking to shrink in size. He was asked about a media report that it considered merging with rival Commerce Bank. Now we're joined by Atlantic Equities' Chris Wheeler. Chris, what a day to have you on uh, the, the, the program. So we have so much banking news from bonus to possible consolidation. This is the question that Tom Keynes has been asking for two years. And I always push back. I say, no, they're not going to consolidate because no one wants a bigger bank. Certainly the regulators don't want. It's, am I wrong? No, well, I, I think partly. I think you can the, say the, yes. The, yeah, well, that's <laughs> the, 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 the bottom line here is that clearly, you know, I don't think Deutsche and Commerce Bank are going to merge. I think that's too big a deal, and I don't think the regulators will be comfortable for a whole host of reasons, not least competition issues around their dealing with the Mittelstand, the German middle-sized companies. Um, but I think the important thing here is, you know, this could be no smoke without fire because Deutsche still want to dispose of Postbank, the big retail banking business they have. They want to get rid of it because they want to get rid of the leverage issues and the capital issues. And maybe, just maybe, they're trying to think of a deal with Commerce Bank who are more skewed towards retail and small business activity. <coughs> where they get it off the balance sheet, maybe get 51% off, do some kind of joint venture to support commerce effectively in growing a much bigger retail bank rather than, obviously, um, you know, as I said, a complete merger of the two right. entities. But this would be a very similar, the big banks, the so-called healthier banks, such as the Italian ones, the bigger ones trying to help the smaller ones. It well, yes, I think so, but it's also trying to, to execute the strategy that Deutsche has, the very clear strategy. Actually, Jane laid it out in April last year. John has followed it through um, in terms of improving considerably their leverage ratio and, as I said, their capital ratio, both of which would be helped considerably if Postbank was off the balance sheet. It's part of their strategy. But it's a very low... Well, it's got very low returns, Postbank. So just selling it to somebody is not really an option. IPOing it, I think, is a tough call. So they're, they're, they have very limited options. Uh, Chris, I want to look at the Commerce Bank and Deutsche Bank chart. I think a lot of our viewers don't realize the train wreck these two banks are, and for that matter, the train wreck German banking is. I don't for a minute believe this is ill-timed. It's the end of August. Am I correct, and you know this with your work at Barclays over the years, working within the bank, this is where you do your year-ahead planning. Is what this discussion really about is a total pipe dream of profitability that is just not going to be there? Well, I think that's, a, that's an important factor because you know, we, we've seen, for example, certainly at Deutsche Bank, you know, laying out a strategy in April last year, being revised when the CEO left and we had a new CEO coming in. But, of course, circumstances, as John keeps reminding us, has changed considerably since yes. then. So it is a matter of saying, my goodness, next year doesn't look a lot better than, than, than the year we're in at the moment. What do we do right. to address that and stop the share price going further down? Perfectly stated. What will be the shrinkage of Deutsche Bank? And for that matter, what will be the shrinkage of the Anglo-Saxon banks if they have to deal with a great distortion, they have to deal with the negative interest rates in each nation, and they have to deal with major central bankers like Stanley Fisher saying they like negative rates. John Cryan doesn't like negative rates. 
rates, does he? Look, I don't think any banker likes negative rates. It causes great confusion. I've been talking to a number of US uh, banks recently, smaller banks, who are worried <laughs> about negative interest rates. And we come back to the fact that in most cases, people view the fact that in a ne negative interest rate scenario, the corporates end up financing the retail customers. Thank you. Um, and, <clears throat> and this is, this is uh, something which is not attractive because you don't really want one, <coughs> one customer group sub subsidising another. But, yeah, I mean, this, this, this makes life incredibly difficult. And, you know, the most important thing is the only thing you can control, Tom, and we've talked about this endlessly, is costs. And so you're back right. on the old bandwagon of how much more costs we can take out the system. What Mr. Wheeler said there, folks, is absolutely critical about the idea that corporate big deposit people subsidize the little accounts because of the unequal application of negative rates. Here is Stan Fisher yesterday in Washington. We've learned that uh, the central banks which are implementing them, there are four or five of them, basically think they're quite successful and are staying with uh, that approach, possibly with the exception of, of Japan, although they're thinking it through and they have said they'll come back uh, to try and make uh, negative rates work, uh, work better. Okay, so there's the vice chairman from 40,000 feet. Chris Wheeler, you're looking at these banks at 3,200 feet, and there's that dreaded crosswind at the Frankfurt airport. What does John Cryan do living in Stan Fisher's world? Look, I, I think John's job, he's got such an enormous job, is to just keep having small wins, small victories. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, you can say Churchill at the Second World War after the Alamein. You know, you just keep wanting to have more and more small victories to feel like you're back in the, you know, you're, you're back actually in the right direction. And I think that's what John's going to have to do because the big picture still tells him he's got the most enormous job in right. terms of, you know, changing the platform, the cost base, but still maintaining a strong revenue flow through his investment bank. Francine, you and I are going to remember this day six months from now. This is just extraordinary how crying has said, look, this is the reality. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And actually, I, I wonder whether it has any influence, right? whether central banks actually listen to guys like that and say, well, maybe I need to change my thinking or tweak it a touch. Edward Morse with us with Citigroup, of course, synthesizing macro and microeconomics downstream and upstream. Let's start right there right now. It's the end of the summer driving season. Is that as true now as it was when you began studying hydrocarbons decades ago? Well, actually, the summer, nobody would have expected when I started studying this that August would be the peak month for oil demand. And that's because we, we had the summer season in the Northern Hemisphere for driving. But now we have the summer electricity season in the Middle East. Because air conditioning didn't exist. Air yeah. conditioning didn't exist. And populations have gotten bigger. So yeah. August is really the peak month, more so than ever. Do you know what we have? I mean, I, I know we don't know what China has in oil. Does Edward Morris actually have an understanding of what is in the hydrocarbons of the United States? Uh, well, I think that, 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 that question is an unfolding one. We know the U.S. has a robust uh, coal base. Uh, coal is becoming a stranded asset. So, you know, we don't care as much about that as we used to. And we know that the oil and gas reserves of the U.S. are really much huger than people would have thought. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought 
that if Pennsylvania were considered to be an independent country, it would be the third largest natural gas producing country in the world. I did not know that. That's why we love him. Francine, that's why we love having Edward Morris here from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, a natural gas Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. They were producing nothing 10 years ago. And they're gonna, they can even double that production. I, I'm assuming Francine gets lost in translation. It's absolutely remarkable that Pennsylvania is the third biggest nat gas producer in the world. Jump in here, Francine. Yeah, Tom, and actually, Ed, it, it goes back to the point, though, that we know, or I, I guess the global markets know very little about how much the U.S. can produce because of these news players, which is shale gas, and how much they can actually export longer term. What's that figure? Uh, well, actually, we don't know, and the number keeps growing, and I know there's, uh, there are a lot of naysayers who think this is still a pyramid scheme, but um, the U.S. is the largest natural gas-producing country in the world, and it's growing, and the major constraint is a subject that uh, Tom is going to be talking about with somebody maybe tomorrow, namely the infrastructure, it's the pipeline capacity. Yeah. The big constraint for not getting more gas out of Pennsylvania, bringing it to export terminals in the south and the southeast, is pipelines. It's pipelines. Stephen Shork with us tomorrow. Really looking forward to talking to Mr. Shork about that infrastructure. Francine, please. Ed, when you look at uh, the oil markets, right, there's so much talk about OPEC doing something. And I know it brings it away a little bit from, from the U.S., but are you surprised that oil, heading for the biggest monthly gain since April, just on talks, and OPEC has disappointed month after month for the last two years? I actually don't understand the hype about OPEC. I've written all over the place that don't think about OPEC as being a real entity any longer. OPEC is dead. It's not likely to be revived anytime mm -hmm. soon. There's no cohesion on objectives. They're all over the place. And Saudi Arabia has decided it doesn't want to play the game it used to play. That game was we are the lowest cost producers in the world. Let's keep our oil in the ground because it's going to be worth more in the future. And the more we keep in the ground, the bigger the delta, the, the, the distance between their production costs and the market price in the world. And right. the, the big shift coming out of U.S. shale in particular is oil in the ground is worth a lot less than oil being produced. That's a big structural shift. Well, let's go back to a basic structural question. Their production costs are a lot less than ours, right? Uh, yes, they are. But we had, uh, uh, we had Scott Sheffield from uh, Pioneer uh, uh, saying all over the place over the last few weeks that production costs in the Permian Basin are equivalent to those in Saudi Arabia. And the Permian Basin now producing 2 million barrels a day could be producing 5 million a day and doing it for decades. So that, uh, that's a very different kind of uh, environment than what OPEC was used to. OPEC used to think about having shut-in capacity that could come back into the market uh, in a range of about a million barrels a day or even two million barrels a day if markets needed it, and they could take it off. Now we have the U.S., which uh, compares with Iraq that may add 200,000 a day or Iran that now that they're back up where mm -hmm. they are could add 200,000 a day. The U.S., by completing drilled but uncompleted wells and increasing drilling, could be back at increasing output a million barrels a day in a year. Ed, is there something about OPEC that we, uh, you know, misunderstand or underestimate that they won't move, they won't freeze if Russia doesn't do the same? Well, they won't freeze unless all the other members of OPEC do the same. And there's no indication uh, that Libya will agree to a production freeze when they have a new governing structure and they're going right. to come back. There's no indication that Nigeria will really agree not to go back to where right. they were at the beginning of the year. What, what should the policy be of an ex-president? Should they have no energy policy, just get out of the way? 
and let American industry do it? You know, the, uh, there, there's a lot more to energy policy than just, you know, are we going to export or import? Are we going to encourage production at home or abroad? We have some serious challenges uh, globally in the energy sector. Those challenges relate to climate change as much as they do to getting energy properly costed. Uh, I think it's clearly in the U.S. interest to have transparent global markets that work, free investment flow, free trade flow. Uh, I clearly think it's in the U.S. interest, as do the majority of Americans, to, uh, to worry about uh, carbon levels globally and to think about what mm. policies can be done to restrict them. But, Ed, you could argue that actually foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, is a proxy for oil policy, right, worldwide. What does a Donald Trump presidency mean for these relationships with oil producers? Well, we don't really know. We know that, uh, uh, and this is, we have one big statement on energy policy from Donald Trump. It was a speech given in North Dakota several months ago. We have nothing new from that, but that was a very much uh, American production-oriented policy. It was, let's get the Keystone XL pipeline built. Uh, let's reduce constraints on production. He modified that to some degree in recent commentary where he said states and local governments should have a, a, a say in shale exploitation. But we don't really know uh, what his global policy is. I, I mean, within all this and in, in your core idea of uh, oil prices rising up is we never get back to $100 a barrel. What did you think looking out of the Ritz-Carlton windows in Dubai or the Jamariya there? You know, you look down on the horse farms of... Of, of the leadership of, uh, of Dubai. What did you think at $100 a barrel? Did you just know it would end? Uh, well, I certainly thought it was not stable and I thought it was going to go down. What I thought when I looked down from those towers was here is a country that, uh, or an entity, uh, a governing entity, that was entirely dependent upon oil. Dubai futures, uh, Dubai futures, because Dubai was, became a marker crude because Dubai production was meaningful. Now it scarcely exists, and the economy was diversified, uh, yeah. and it went beyond oil. It was the first time in the history right. of the oil business that this happened. Within the knowledge, and I don't want to get into very sensitive Citigroup issues, do you just assume Abu Dhabi owns most of Dubai? Are there, is that a visible transaction, or are those sidecar deals when they have to bail out, when rich Abu Dhabi has to bail out poorer Dubai? Do we uh, know who owns what? Uh, we actually don't know who, who owns what. Uh, we don't know who subsidizes what. Uh, but clearly, uh, once the Dubai expansion got to where it was in 2008-9, they did have to get bailed out. Yeah. There's been a revival in the Dubai economy. Part of that revival is from tourism. That's independent of anything that happens right. in Abu Dhabi. Part of that revival is aluminum manufacture. Part of that revival is really a housing market that's catered to the Middle East itself, to Arabs and other Arab countries that want to have another place that's a safe haven, a safe haven in their own region. Well, I think we've done a lot of the, the usual discussion, and I want to rip up the script, and you're so competent, I know when I rip up the script, you're going to kill it. The North Sea, give us an update. Is it a depleted field that's fading out into the decades, or can there be vibrancy in North Sea oil? Now, the likelihood is five years from now, there'll be virtually no production out of the North Sea. It'll be dead. It'll be dead. Um, yes, high prices uh, gave it a little bit of a kick, but it's, yeah. uh, it's high cost. And now the, the operators are struggling between 
the costs of keeping production going and the costs of demolishing uh, the infrastructure of the oil fields, the costs of, uh, of getting out of the business. Yeah. Ed, when you look at the North Sea, how, what's the break-even cost? Do, it, it seems like it's a lot more expensive than for U.S. shale gas producers. But then again, as you were saying, we don't know much about what's happening in the U.S., uh, no, the cost is significantly higher. Uh, there are no big fields to give leverage to a big investment. You can look at uh, the new play that Statoil is doing. It's in the Arctic, not in uh, not in the North Sea. The, they get a, a new discovery. They're going to be producing 660,000 barrels a day out of that. That's worth an investment, an investment that's going to produce 25 or 50,000 barrels a day in a low-price environment has a cost structure that's in the $50 to $60 range. It's just not really going to be worth it. When you look at the cash flow of Norway, I, I'm speaking as an amateur, their sovereign wealth fund has been hugely successful. It's, it's arguably the best run one in the world. Do you just assume wealth depletion for Norway in the coming decades? Uh, not really. Uh, Norway has a really significant amount of natural gas. They have more oil in their future. They're going to be uh, maybe off their peak in oil, but they'll be at their peak in natural gas. So the revenue stream coming out of hydrocarbons for a country whose population is smaller than the city that we're sitting in, um, you know, this, this, this is a cash cow that keeps giving, uh, giving the cash. They've, they pulled back on their uh, sovereign wealth uh, fund a little bit because they needed the cash uh, in the last year and a half. But uh, uh, that's what the sovereign wealth fund is all about. It's, uh, it, it's to provide that uh, uh, that rainy day fund for the country. And are, are you worried about, we talked about correlation between the markets, about the oil and the rest of the markets, but there's also real correlation, like I've never seen it before, um, between growth or lack of growth, and then a lot of countries trying to balance their books, which is difficult if oil stays at 50. Uh, yeah, there are a couple of difficulties com confronting uh, commodity uh, producing countries. One is just the uh, the one crop economies uh, who, when they're in the hydrocarbon business and have not taken steps like Dubai took to diversify the economy, are um, in trouble. Some of them, uh, like the Middle East countries, uh, are in a position where they can actually do that transformation. You have to worry about uh, Nigeria, Venezuela, other kind of large uh large countries without the cash flow, without the rainy day funds, uh, and the challenge right. in front of them. One final question. Every single conversation Francine Lacroix and I have about fiscal spending goes back to infrastructure. What's the state of infrastructure in your oil industry? Is, is the pipelines we think of, are they all rotting? I mean, is that a generalization you can go? What's the state of the pipes. It really depends on where you're looking. We have in the U.S. both the best infrastructure and the worst infrastructure. We have pipes going through a big reservoir in uh, in Nebraska that were laid 60 years ago when the technology for pipes, wow. seamless, <clears throat> non-leakable pipes, was not available in the market. The pipes that are being laid now are, are not likely to spring leaks anytime soon. Ed Morris, thank you so much. This is just always hugely valuable. Uh, Dr. Morris, is with Citigroup on oil and come We didn't even get to other Francine, we did not get to gold. We did not get to platinum, palladium. Edward Morris has a whole we'll other back. life that we don't know. Who you put your trust in matters. 
Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. He is truly one of the most interesting economists practicing today. To say he's out of the booth school barely does justice to the path of economics of one Austin Goolsby out of Milton Academy uh, near Boston and on through the pedigree of uh, a Ph.D. in economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Austin Goolsby has been original. He is a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and supporter Secretary Clinton joins us now. Austin, did you study under Stanley Fisher at MIT? Tom, great. Thanks for having me back. I did. He was my professor. He's a good, uh, he's a good friend of mine. You don't agree with him no, on a on more this, robust economy. Where is Professor Fisher wrong on a certain robustness that would allow rates to increase? I think it's not just Professor Fisher. It's a new it's a it's a whole group of people who look and they fear the rise of imminent inflation. And I just I don't think that's correct and I think that um it's a it's a little unfair to say most of those people have been saying that same thing for the last six years that we're about to have inflation and that the economy is about to overheat and it has proven not true thus far. Um, but I think we're we're in this environment where we're growing two to two and a half percent, and we still that, that that's that's just not that strong. And if you look at what's happening in the rest of right. the world, it just makes me nervous that that we're taking for granted what we well, have so far. And you were in the crucible of this at 10% unemployment, Austin Goolsby, and then Alan Kruger, uh, and now Jason Furman at the White House. What were you saying to the president at 9.6% unemployment? I, would, I was saying something like, ah! You know, or the, that was a, that was a horrible, horrible time, as you as yeah. you remember. And we talked then uh, about it. Um, the my overwhelming fear going through that at the end of 2008, right. going into the beginning of 2009, was we can't let this turn into a depression. Um, it has to it has to remain just okay. a very bad recession. And I set this up, folks, because I get upset because Austin Gulby goes on the Colbert Report or whatever, and it's ha-ha. You know, I get the humor part, but underneath this is a very serious economist. When you lean forward and advise Secretary Clinton, are you preparing her for a recession policy? Are you preparing her for stagnation slash summer's policy? Or are you preparing her for uh, Mr. Trump's 4% American economy. That is an interesting way to put it. I guess I would say my view is that in the in the immediate term, let's call it next one to two years, the U.S. should get ready for you know a bit of a bumpy ride. In my view, a lot coming from the international headwinds, but that it's not going to be that great, and that anybody who thinks we're about to either shoot off the 
off the top of the chart or overheat that they're probably overstating, but anybody who thinks we're on the edge of collapse, uh, that that's probably overstating, too. So, Over Austin, the longer run, I guess, I mean, I, I, I don't associate myself with very much with the Trump viewpoint. Oh, really? I, I do think we got a long, over-the-five-year-plus yeah. horizon. I think that there are a lot of both natural and well-earned advantages that the U.S. Okay. economy has, so let, I'm not a pessimist at Austin, all. Austin, let me bring in from London our Francine Lacroix. Francine with Professor Gould. Austin, you talk about a bumpy ride. Do you still think that there's a one in three chance of a recession before the end of 2017? If there was a one in three chance that my car would crash, let me tell you, I would not be getting into that car. Well, um, I think you can't rule out that there's at least, you know, 20, 25 percent chance of a recession, though I would. I mean, if if we were thinking of it in car crashes, the 2007 to 2009 recession was like an epic uh, fatal risking car crash. And there's a difference between a normal recession and a recession like 2008. So when I when I say there's still at least 20, 25 percent chance of recession by the end of 2017, I'm thinking of normal recession, not 2008 Epic, style. Right. Do yeah. low interest rates raise the risks of financial instability? And if yes, then is the prescription for that not to raise them? Um, this is a whole, this is basically a religious dispute. Um, I'm inclined to think that they do raise the risks of some financial instability or call it of bubbles um, when, when rates are really low. But the, the correct uh, question in economics, as I always say, the central question is compared to what? And the question here is compared to what? And if the alternative is, well, let's just raise the rates, um, I, I, personally, I think that the, that the argument that we ought to raise the rates and potentially drive ourselves into recession so that we will have tools to fight the next recession doesn't – that misses one logical right. step to me. Right. What if you – I mean, there is a line of thought and people argue that we should raise rates because otherwise when inflation comes – and I know you don't believe that inflation is around the quarter – but when the economy is that much stronger in 2017, you have to raise rates a whole of lot quicker, which puts households in, in a difficult spot. That, that, is, uh, that is kind of the most reasonable version of, of the argument on the other side, I would say. And I, and I, and I believe that if we, if we sat down and talked to Stan Fisher, that, that, would, be, uh, that would be his argument. Uh, so you, you can't 100% rule that out. I would only say that if you don't think that we are on the cusp of overheating and getting a lot of inflation, then the raising of rates right now – it preemptively um, just raises the risk that we go into right. recession. And then you say, I, I guess I still look at it of, well, we know how to fight inflation. Um, and there's no evidence that inflation expectations are coming unhinged. It, unless and until you start seeing that people are adjusting their inflation expectations right. um, in the way they did in, this, in the 70s, I, I just don't 
I guess I don't understand why we would okay. risk driving into recession. Austin, you've been very good at bridging, a la Gary Becker, this idea of hardcore DSG economics over to behavioral economics and the such. What I noticed at Jackson Hole was economics in a vacuum. And the mm -hmm. vacuum is the financial system. You know, more like a Luigi Zingales analysis yeah. where we're doing a lot of model building and we're looking at yeah. modern model building and dynamics and even an emotion, as Olivier Blanchard says, back to ISLM or Mundell Fleming. I get all that, but we're not linking it into a banking world with the rate distortion that's being sponsored, the negative rate distortion that's being responsive. Don't economists have to pay attention to the bank ramifications? Yeah, they should. I think that's a great. Uh, I think that's a great point. You know, moving into a little into the research economics world. Shame on us as a profession for not having figured that out. Uh, you know, we hadn't had that figured out. We did not appreciate how important the financial side of the ledger was going to be. But now we had a horrible recession based on financial crisis. We do. We the economists do need to figure out that uh, the implications for the bank sector. And and it does. Look, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be pie in the sky or, or oblivious. It does make me nervous. Um, for sure, the negative rates, possibility of financial bubbles, uh, deteriorating lending standards, big rise of debt, especially in international uh, other countries besides the U.S., all of those are, are risk factors, and they, and they definitely make me nervous. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.